This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I am Nori's creative editor. What is Nori? Nori is a carbon removal marketplace. And at this carbon removal marketplace, we have a agriculture supply lead named Rebecca Carlson. Hi, Rebecca. Hey, Ross. This is good to have you. To introduce what we're actually doing here, you wrote an article on Medium called Nori's Stance on Soil Sampling, Why Soil Sampling Isn't, parenthetical, yet, and parenthetical, a silver bullet for soil carbon credits. Why did you write this article? I imagine you probably had a lot of experience with soil sampling in your former time spent as an agronomist and researcher. And I imagine you have quite strong opinions on this matter. Yeah, I do. So I spent many years like soil sampling for agronomy, which is just running through the back roads in Nebraska with a four-wheeler gathering as many soil samples as you can in the fall and then sending them in for analysis. But I've also had the experience of soil sampling for research, right? Of a replicated design. What does it take to understand like the dynamics of your soil based on X treatment, right? So the two types of soil sampling are really different, but are often compared. And at Nori, I mean, we work with soil carbon, right? All of our carbon credits are based on soil carbon right now. And so we get the question of a lot of like, how do you actually measure your soil carbon. And we strictly use crop modeling, right, to understand the changes in soil carbon for based on regenerative practices. But we get a lot of heat. There's a lot of schools of thought of how to measure it. Of Is it just with modeling or should we use actual soil sampling? And because we don't use soil sampling, I wanted to write this article to take the time to like unpack the reasons why. It wasn't just a, a lazy decision. It was a really thought out decision. I was listening, I swear, Rebecca, but I was also (laughs) thinking about, we've been making a lot of memes lately. I was trying to think of what's a good movie to have a bar fight and you would caption it as being something like carbon removers talking about soil sampling or measuring soil carbon. It's just like people being thrown (laughs) and bottles being broken and... It's, yeah, that's it. That's what happens at the conferences I go to. There's chairs thrown, fear poured out. out of control. (laughs) It is one of those topics, though, that the stakes are high. It's Mm -hmm. a really important question to, to get right. There's active disagreement. There's also good faith disagreement. People mm-hmm. can disagree about how much precision is actually worthwhile because mm-hmm. there are also super lightweight versions of this that you wonder, like, does this actually hold up? Right. And then as a business, you also have to do things that you can't be perfect at everything or your scale will be negligible. So you have an easy job is what I'm trying to say. Oh, yeah, super. No, like, that's why I say it's like two schools of thought, right? I don't think it's like right or wrong at this point. Like a lot of agricultural companies have the funding to like have soil sampling to back their carbon credits. But at Nori, we can't pass that price on that cost on producers, right? The the cost of soil sampling for carbon is upwards of sixty dollars a sample. Wow. How many how many samples do you need for an acre? Oh, 
Do you want to talk stats? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I want to talk stats. Tell me. No, it's it expensive. really dependent on like soil types, agronomic practices. How do you standardize and stratify a- appropriately? Um, and so having that kind of research going into even that one question is is a lot of work. I'm trying to think about how to structure this. So someone listening who is not super well-versed in the world of soil carbon or and soil sampling uh, might make sense of this. Mm-hmm. Why don't we take a step back and why don't you explain these two schools of thought as you conceptualize them and maybe that's a good vantage point in. Okay, sure. Okay, so the two schools of thought are for measuring soil carbon specifically are to use soil sampling or to not use soil sampling. And if you don't use soil sampling, you use crop modeling. There's a, a third that kind of blends both, but I'm, I'm just going to talk about the two today. Uh, the first is soil sampling. Again, soil sampling for carbon is takes appropriate stratification, which is a big word. Uh, just like, how do we understand where to take our samples? We is, need is stratification the, the depth? No, not the depth at this point. It's oh. like the width, you know, over X amount of acres. How do you say like, this represents one soil type, this represents another soil type? I see. Is, is stratification just another way of saying it's the taxonomy of the soils being in the categorizing of them? Yeah, the categorizing. So like the samples you take are the same or being compared to the same thing. So you might say a set of samples might be stratified. Is this even the right way to say it? <laughs> You're looking for a synecdoche, right? You're looking for this sample will stand in for this amount of territory. Mm-hmm. And this is an accurate, good faith understanding mm-hmm. of the soil type. Mm-hmm. So that's what you mean by that? More or less, okay. yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's questions like that of how to know where to take your soil samples, what kind of assays you use when you take the soil samples and then run them at the lab. So what is an assay? So assay is just like the testing method for understanding how much carbon is in that soil. Huh. I thought about making a... That would have been a Christoph thing. If Christoph is here, Christoph, we love you. Mm-hmm. Love you. Looking forward to talking to you. And he would have been like, ah, I say what you're doing here or something <laughs> like that. And then I would have gone, ugh. So instead, I just made a meta comment about mm-hmm. it. Said the joke I wanted to say, but was too scared to say <laughs> under my own steam. <laughs> All right. So stratification, assays, we got some definitions done. Hopefully that's a good background of knowledge for a listener who's new to this. But let's keep working through what are these two schools of, of thought with using soil sampling or not? Okay. So again, back to the first one of using soil sampling. The main purpose of it is that you get direct measurement of the land that's measuring carbon, right? So you're you're not making assumptions. You're like at the land that we're, we're quantifying carbon on, but it's expensive. So the pros, you get direct measurements. It is exactly what you're measuring is feeding into the model of what the farmer is doing in this case. The cons, however, are that it's expensive. It's not standardized. It's data that Soil carbon, understanding its fluctuations throughout the soil is really complex. And not that it's a new field of science, but it's kind of been an overlooked field of science for a while. So our understanding of that isn't as robust as it is for, saying understanding nutrient dynamics in soil. Mm. So That's surprising. Yeah. Well, nutrients, I mean, the market drives it, right? Because nutrients make, in this case, corn. And any plant, like the yield goes like up. NPK yeah. stuff. Okay. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, yeah. and micronutrients. That has such an immediate return, right? You take your measurement of your soil, you're low on nitrogen, you add more nitrogen, the next year, the yield goes up. Whereas soil, it changes over a long period of time. You don't have that immediate return of like, this is what we're getting now, up until now that we're getting carbon markets, 
running and showing the value for it, uh, my hope is that research will continue to pour into the soil sampling. Both for modeling and also for sampling, people oftentimes frame this that modeling doesn't have enough soil samples and you can't confidently extrapolate from the few to saying this region has some samples and all the soils within it map closely enough to this to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. But I've also heard people say that even with soil sampling, that dynamic happens within the same field, Mm -hmm. where it's oftentimes the carbon counts, even inside a field that is being directly measured, can be radically different. Is that Mm -hmm. true? Yeah, neither are awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So it's uh, on soil sampling, you're being so specific, and that one measurement is then extrapolated to the entire field. But everything that can go wrong between taking that sample and then estimating the carbon, like how deep did it go? Was there debris? Was there any like trash from the top of the field calculated in the estimates? What if it was, you know, wasn't mixed properly? All of these sorts of things that can get extrapolated to be like, oh, we over underestimated what's actually there. Whereas on the flip side with modeling, it's like we made huge assumptions about, you know, what this area of land could give us or like how the soil samples that validated and calibrated models we're from a specific site, can we extrapolate that to the further understanding? And so it's like, neither are perfect, both have their benefits, but which one's accessible to get the market going? When we are talking about these regional soil samplings being done for modeling purposes, how big of an area and how many samples are within that? Oh, that's a good question. It depends on the area. It's really dependent on which research stations and research sites are being used to feed into the modeling. So back when I was doing research at University of Minnesota, I did a lot of crop modeling for understanding nitrogen dynamics and nitrogen leaching. And the models I used, like the amount of calibration that it takes, like you go out in the fall, you get a ton of soil samples to then build out a model. And that is good for, you know, the area of Southwest Minnesota. And I say that with a grain of salt, good for my research in the area of Southwest Minnesota. But there's a network of all these research stations really across the U.S. that depending if they're feeding into the models that we're using, those represent, you know, the United States. That makes sense? I think so. I'm wondering if it might help to narrow it down a little bit. I imagine there are some agricultural hotspots that have more than others. I imagine something like Eastern Washington and the Palouse with wheat, right? That's got to be, they've got to have, like, that's, that's a discrete region probably. Yeah, and there's various parts of the Corn Belt that are substantively different enough that they have their own mm-hmm. sampling. And it's really uh, driven by like land-grant universities, mm. too, and their research stations that are set up across the state that represent the different soil types and just farming zones, so you can do appropriate research for that community. Yeah, that's intriguing. I can imagine, I'm from Arizona, we have a lot of cotton and citrus, so I imagine what is ASU probably facilitating to some degree research on behalf of those farmers? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh-huh. that's okay. Yep, they definitely have. I mean, I haven't been there, but the grad students there work on all those. Grad students and professors and researchers work on all the crops there. And given these two two broad schools of thought about to what degree we should start inward on at the field level sampling and zoom out, versus starting zoomed out and then applying it to specific fields. You think this latter approach with thinking regionally and then looking down into specific fields that are enrolled in Nori's carbon market, you think that approach makes more sense? 
I do, even though I get sometimes people like, that's a cop-out. But for Nori, we're carbon removal marketplace, right? We're not an agricultural company. Taking all the samples to understand what these dynamics are on that specific of a basis isn't good for like our bottom line, right? We're not going to use these samples to like understand our own models because we're always using third-party tools uh, just to have credits that are built on something that we aren't built on. Does that make sense? Of We, we want to use tools that we didn't build to understand our carbon credits because if you're like, oh, we have incredible tools and we all sequestered so much carbon. Oh. <laughs> I think what you're saying is that there are other carbon markets that are being started by agricultural companies and they're really interested in building those data sets where we've all, you also mentioned this in the article that farmers own their own data when they interact with Nori, mm -hmm. but that isn't always the case for other soil carbon mm -hmm. marketplaces. And that's because in the long run, this is much more about proprietary models, about other services that can be sold or monetized through data that is captured through this. Mm -hmm. And that isn't really what we're trying to do. Right. We're not trying to do that. And it's it's not necessarily saying that other companies are trying to do that. But having that kind of data fits in with their vision, fits in with their purpose and helps understanding on a greater scale. Like say these companies could do the aggregation, could understand the science to have appropriate soil samples that feed into our understanding of soil carbon over the long term. Everybody will benefit from that. But at Nori, if we want to make it accessible to farmers and not either absorb that cost ourselves of soil sampling or pass that cost on to, to our farmers, modeling is the place that we start. People often say that that's a cop-out to you? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why? I think it's because they want the direct measurements. They want, they're in that school of thought of, they want what's happening on this field exactly so that we have high quality carbon credits. And we want to always incorporate all of that. But again, our vision is to accept methods, not build our methods, if that makes sense. And so therefore we, we don't have the capacity. That's not even that. That's not, we just don't plan on making our tools to like house soil samples and do that kind of research, but we do depend on other incredible institutions, whether it be academic, private, or public sectors that are doing this work that we want to incorporate at a later time. Let me know if this is the wrong framing for this, but soil sampling strikes me as a form of experimentation, but for an experiment to be scientifically valid, there needs to be a control, right? Mm -hmm. How do you use controls with soil sampling? Oh, that's another good question. So that comes to down to like the question of baseline, right? Yeah, I think people especially, throw this this word around a lot, they do. especially if they use dynamic in front of it. I know. And what what does that really mean? So it like in soil sampling, our control is you know if you do with a specific question of like how do regenerative practices affect soil organic carbon, right? To ask that question, you have to have a control of what happens if we didn't have regenerative practices, right? <laughs> so if this is getting a bit too convoluted, but having that controller baseline of we can use modeling pretty easily for because we don't have to set aside a parcel of land for a farmer to not touch or continue doing their old practices. Well, I wish farmland is oftentimes quite expensive in certain places too. I can't imagine farmers would always feel too happy about that. Yeah, not too happy. And it's just, I mean, from an operating standpoint, like farmers aren't out there to run experiments per se, at, at that level, though they're always testing a thousand things. Um, <laughs> but they're not going to be like, hey, I'm going to not touch, I'm going to use this piece of land and do it conventional in these five acres and the rest of my acres, I'm going to do something else. But that doesn't make sense for their operation. They just, they need to do everything as they see best fit for their land and setting, asking a farmer to set things aside, it gets tricky. 
for example, that we did some on-farm research back at University of Minnesota. And one of the farmers that we were working with, you know, he had, he was doing on-farm research designs. Great. Running experiment, the grad students would go out, take samples. Well, that year he decided to put in like tiling, which is basically like burying pipes to help water drain off of your land easier. And he did that right through the experiment. And so the whole thing was ruined. So it's like farmer is going to make the decisions for their farm. And so having that control, if you're like, we want to test baseline for the next 10 years is a bit unreasonable. Did those grad students get held back a year? Uh, <laughs> Are they still there? They're still there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's fascinating. I mean, someone could legitimately then say, okay, what you're suggesting may not be practical from an economic standpoint for farms, but it just isn't scientifically close enough to the truth that we can confidently say this. What might you say to something like that? I think someone could hear everything that you're saying and understand the position of the farmer who probably doesn't want to be running active experiments or setting extremely valuable land aside for soil sampling, which also probably increases the complexity of their operations too, right. depending on the stratification, right? Uh, like, of course. <laughs> like, would this would this control sample just be like in the middle of a field so then now they have to run their combines around it in some strange way? It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's probably I mean, it difficult. could be. It could be. It doesn't have to be. Right. Depends mm-hmm. on the... the but hence, we don't want to... Like, we're not going to, in our from our standpoint, ask farmers to do that. Right? Yes. Some people, I think would demand such a thing just to make sure that if they were buying carbon removals from Norway or some other uh, soil carbon marketplace, that it actually existed and was being tracked and wasn't just a vaporous thing. Yeah. That- well, that's why we use like good models. We're using soil metrics, which is backed by Descent modeling. And it's the Comet Farm platform that uses all these models. And that platform is the only like USDA Blue Book approved greenhouse gas emissions tool. So we're not just willy-nilly just, you know, running a couple algorithms and be like, yeah, Joe, you get 0.2, you know, carbon credits per acre. We're using the scientifically backed modeling that is using soil sampling to both calibrate and validate those understandings. And so that, yes, it's a broader scale, but it drives the research towards understanding it more and more. Calibrating versus validating. Is calibrating involved in the setting of the baseline? Calibrating the model of soil sampling is basically taking, you know, a model run and estimating carbon that changes over over time. And then it's using specific soil samples to kind of like recalibrate or readjust the trend line so it's reflective of what's, what's actually happening on that parcel of land over that given soil type, for example. Yeah, modeling is dependent upon soil samples in order to build and, and calibrate the model and to, to learn over time. Couldn't you have both? Both modeling and soil sampling? Like why not have modeling and then check it with direct measurement? Does that, does that make sense or is it more complicated than that? It does make sense. There are a couple points of complication though uh, because we have uncertainty and error with modeling and we also have uncertainty and error with soil sampling. So combining both of those estimates also combines both of our uncertainties. It just takes a lot more data points and research. I like went back and forth on my head on this because I could see, are you maybe having multiple uncertainties in some weird way might 
balance them out or lessen that, or I could also see them just multi- multiplying mm-hmm. them. Yeah, it's enter- entropy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's entropy. After all. <laughs> it's, it comes back to entropy. It ultimately. always does. That's second law. But that said, like there is a lot of great research that is trying to bring that tighter, right? I mean, some of these companies that are running all of this soil sample experimentations, there's a lot of new like sensor technologies too, something we haven't talked about of, okay, what's what's that balance of we want to model things out, but we don't want to take destructive soil sampling or like actually going into the field, poking a hole in the ground and running it in the lab. And that that bridge is using kind of remote sensing capabilities. And some of that research of that that blending to make it easier, but also more of a direct measurement. There's a thousand companies, it seems like out there that are trying to crack that code. And I really think a couple of them will. I think so, too. I've seen quite a few of them. Uh, either existing enterprises or startups trying to figure out the handheld yeah. spectrometer, the handheld soil sampling device. Uh-huh. I wonder to what degree that will actually take off here. Surely if someone can, although I could also see a host of other problems being introduced by such a thing too. I can imagine people just wandering around their fields and thinking that they're getting accurate readings, but a lot of it is depth. I've seen things with uh, remote imaging and sensing with satellites and drones. Some of it seems to be based upon the color that they're observing of the soil. I'm not sure how accurate all of these things are. This is another one of these like roadhouse bar fight. (laughs) It's not accurate yet. I mean, it's, I, there's a lot of progress being made, but it's not at the point right now that I've seen uh, that we can be like, yep, that is a scientifically backed estimation of carbon that we can use to issue NRTs off of. You have a hard job, Rebecca. (laughs) You and uh, Radhika and the rest of the supply team. and I guess Nori as a whole, this is really everything. Yeah, I know. (laughs) We're always like, oh gosh, another roadblock. But it's really fun to think through, right? Because I do make the comparison a lot to nutrient sampling. What I talked about earlier, it's, it's, we understand like when you go and take a soil sample, you have X amount of you know nitrogen and that will give you the generic prescription of how much fertilizer to apply the next year. But when nitrogen sampling started and our understanding of nitrogen use, it was really broad and there were a lot of assumptions being made and we didn't know really kind of like how to fine tune that. So we would just apply like blanket nitrogen fertilizer amounts. But now we have like precision egg. We can understand our soil, you know, nitrogen in this case, dynamics like on a per acre, on a per zone level, and we can apply nitrogen really specifically to those spots. And a lot of times, like right now, we have this expectation of precision agriculture in every step that we take in the agricultural world. They're like, well, why isn't it like exact, exact, exact? And we always have to like take a step back and say, we're just starting this. We're just starting getting soil carbon as like a commodity for growers to understand how they can actually benefit from this in their pocketbook. And it takes time and research to actually get it down to that precision granularity. As we start, we have to be like, we are starting. We're pioneering this. And that therefore, we have so many questions that make all of our brains hurt all the time to figure that out. But we're not going to not start. How's that? <laughs> I think that is wise and one of the reasons why I continue to to work at Nori. I guess if I didn't, uh, why why even <laughs> hang out? This is a long-running fight in carbon removal communities. Uh, many think that precision is extremely important and the soil science is not there. So we should just not do it at all. Right. Some people are so so value permanence 
that soil, it's so hard to make those kinds of claims with over time. But I think one thing that the biosphere has going for it is the sense of scale. I think if we waited for various types of direct air capture or lithospheric storage, just roll your eyes. Yeah, that was, like, it's a word thing. What it, that is. <laughs> and storing it in rock. Oh, yes. And underground. The scale of that is so petite that I wonder if in a decade, really how far we will be. So I wonder, not the cliche, I uh, don't want to make the perfect the enemy of the good, but I, I fear if we don't take advantage of some of these low-hanging fruit, even with the risks, I don't think we're going to get anywhere with carbon removal, I frankly. I can lose sleep over these things. Like, how are we doing something that's good, right? Are we building something that actually is making an impact? And when I think about the bigger picture, like these practices that we're trying to incentivize and we're, we're using early adopters to show like, yes, it is worth it. They have so many benefits, right? If we are, if we are getting more people to, you know, continue doing their cover crop, continue not tilling their soil, there is a carbon benefit. Yes, but there's a whole host of environmental benefits that are added on top of that, that are, all of them are good basically. <laughs> and so if we're driving something that is having this, this sustainable approach to farming become the norm because it's economically viable and not just like stewardship viable, because getting things to change in farming, it takes so much time and it's asking a lot on an individual farmer to do that. But having this price associated with it to drive it forward, I think has so much benefit. And so it's like, okay, I mean, we're the first to say, like, we're figuring it out, right? We're not here being like, we've, we, this is the right thing to do. It's, we're moving forward in a way that we're comfortable with, even if there is, you know, backlash, but we, we do have good tools so that when we have the better and better tools, they'll be reflected in our marketplace. But in the meantime, more cover crops. <laughs> Looking forward, what are you anticipating with, with soil science, with agronomy as it pertains to soil carbon in carbon marketplaces? I think we we will have more like research sites to feed into the models um, and we'll have better tools and more standardization of what it means to measure carbon in the soil. Is it pretty, I mean, do people use different tests and they try to compare them, but they're apples and oranges? Sometimes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's like a common thing that's still happening. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why would a lab invest in carbon sequestration like equipment when all of their business comes from nutrients? I see. Okay. Um, what else are you seeing? Are you seeing any trends, anything you're picking up on? Well, I, yeah, again, I see like better tools, more standardization of our soil sampling techniques and assays that we talked about earlier. Tools that you can do at remote sensing that are that are also, you know, calibrated and validated by soil sampling. And I also, I mean, from like an agronomic point of view, like I'll put on my researcher hat. That's one. I'll put on my like agronomy hat. That's another and I would love like in the next five, 10 years that when farmers are making decisions for their operation, it's not just like, how do we get more yield, how, more, more yield that they're actually making decisions? Like, how do we get more soil carbon? Because that makes an economic uh, return on investment for my, for my family's farm. Do you think the time will come where precision is cheap and scalable? Yeah, I do. Cause it, it like, it has come with like nitrogen. Just with the precision ag revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How far off do you think this might be? Hmm. I mean, I think we'll see like noticeable differences within five years of like farming operation and soil carbon. Uh, five to 10. I think we've asked this on other shows before and it's such a facile question. They're already measuring the nutrients. Why not just stick a soil sensor in there? 
for carbon. Because we don't have one that's good enough yet. Yeah. <laughs> just, just stick it in there. Yeah, yeah. which is, I know. I, well, that's the thing. Because like, as we're still at this like new part of understanding soil carbon, we need really precise soil samples. But when I'm like running in like November trying to get as many soil samples as I can, like from the agronomic point of view, I'm not thinking about like the exact precision to feed into a scientific model. I'm thinking like, I want to get all this done before this ground freezes. Right. So once we have like the understanding first, then we can go rogue in the backfields to get soil samples that actually feed into soil carbon credits, NRTs particularly. Well, uh, if you would like to learn more about this, uh, Rebecca's article is great. It's called Nori's Stance on Soil Sampling. It, you can find it in the show notes here. It's also on Nori's Medium page. There's a lot to talk about. I love this topic. I like talking about these issues and the constraints of running a business and trying to balance mm-hmm. scalability, cost, accuracy, all of these things. Because I think sometimes if you're not in the space of having to think in terms of constraints, I think it's easier to see a lot of these fights happening. Yeah, agreed. I find you not to be very ideological about it. You sound like you're just trying to work with the technology that's available in a way that actually makes sense and it's refreshing. Thanks. Not to, not to flatter you too much, but <laughs> flattering. No, it's. It, I mean, it's exciting to that balance. Like you said, the constraints really kind of puts a, a lid on what could be, and they're like, what what can we do? And so it's fun to try to figure out in a way that works for farmers and for our marketplace. Well, thanks for being here, Rebecca. Thanks for having me, Ross. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, we've been doing a lot together and there's more to come too. Uh, Thanks so much for listening and learning more about Nori. If you want to learn more about us, we have so many resources on nori.com. You can learn more about how we do what we do and why we do it. Uh, If you would also, please give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps us a lot, helps us get this content out to more people. Hey, and thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.